Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. We have bad, bad, and crazy martinis today, or maybe it's bad, crazy, and crazy. Two of them dealing with the horrific terrorist attack in uh, Christchurch, New Zealand, uh, that some of us found out about overnight and many more this morning. Uh, Jim, I'll quote here from USA Today. At least 49 people were killed in shootings at two mosques in the New Zealand city of Christchurch Friday in what appeared to be carefully planned terrorist attacks that included a lengthy anti-immigrant manifesto and live streaming of the carnage. More than 20 other people were seriously wounded in the racist rampage. One person, a self-proclaimed racist who described himself as a 28-year-old Australian, was arrested and charged with murder, and two others were detained in what New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern called one of New Zealand's darkest days. She says, quote, it's clear that this can now only be described as a terrorist attack. There was a 70-page manifesto against immigrants. He mentions Trump, even mentions Candace Owens. Uh, so, Jim, uh, a lot of folks talking about the the rise of, of white supremacy and the threat that it presents now. Obviously, just a horrific, horrific day in New Zealand. It, it's the same death toll that we saw at the, the Pulse Club in uh, Orlando back in 2016. So uh, we're familiar in this country with the seeing and waking up to this type of carnage. What do you make of it today? Yeah, this story is like an onion of bad Um, each time you think you've seen how bad the story can get, there's another layer to it. Um, one of the things that jumps out at you is, uh, I don't know about you, you know, other folks you hear up, oh God, terrible mass death of a terror attack overseas. Maybe your first thought goes to Al Qaeda or ISIS, but no, no, this appears to be, uh, I don't know whether you'd characterize it as white nationalist. Uh, one of the perpetrators described themselves as fascist, um, this is uh, you know extremely high death toll. One of the things that kind of jumped out at me was how much the details of this match. Uh, I'm not going to say maybe you know if I say the jihadist playbook, people are saying ah oh, Jim's saying it's it's really jihad. No, I'm saying that they everything the jihadists had demonstrated in their terrorist attacks over the years ended up being used in this one. If the if all these initial reports are accurate, and obviously sometimes you get. Uh, erroneous information this early in the process but um just you know the the horror of uh the reported use of explosive devices a report of multiple attackers um use of recording it all and putting it up on the internet um the manifesto all really really bad and the sort of thing that can just you know traumatize people for the rest of their lives i don't think new zealand has ever experienced anything like this uh, this could very well feel like their 9-11. Each moment it seems to get worse because you'd like to think a terror event like this would bring out the best in people. Uh, I don't think that's happened. <laughs> I think that uh, is, is, the, uh, is the statement from Senator Fraser Anning our second martini or is that the, uh, or am I still on the first one? Uh, he's still on the first one if you want to go there. Go All right. So let's, you know, um, he put out a statement. Uh, it is lengthy. Um, and it has a couple of the I'm opposed of a violence to be sure type statements. Um, but first of all, they refer to as violent vigilantism. This is shooting up mosques, right? There's nothing. This is not Batman. This is not uh, uh, some sort of response to a crime or something like that. But then he says the real cause of bloodshed on New Zealand streets today is the immigration program, which allowed Muslim fanatics 
to migrate to New Zealand in the first place. Now, again, white nationalist shooter, but he's saying the problem is immigration. Uh, and then there's this, this segment at the end where um, just because the followers of this savage belief were not the killers in this instance does not make them blameless. Greg, we hear the phrase blaming the victim thrown around a lot, but rarely is it so explicit and literal as in this case where this uh, uh, New Zealand lawmaker, the senator, decides to basically say, well, really, the people who got shot had some uh, uh, have some responsibility here. And I, I just think it's abhorrent and horrifying and morally inverted. Um, this is what drove us nuts post 9-11 when everyone would say, yeah, the terrible the terrorist attacks were terrible. But American policies in the Middle East, no, there's no but there. There's nothing that justifies it. There's nothing that makes it okay. Nothing that makes it understandable. And that's where we are, uh, Greg, at this at this hour. It um, it did not bring out the best of this particular New Zealand lawmaker. I'm sure they get universally condemned, but I don't think you put out a statement like that if you care about being condemned. That old saying, when somebody tells you who they are, believe them. This is someone who believes that the victims either had it coming or did something to provoke this horrible massacre today. Yeah, this is, I think, uh, one of the problems and why I think we're never going to see the response that we saw after 9-11 again, because we're, we're so polarized, and it's not just here, it's in other parts of the world as well, that whenever there's a tragedy, you're going to have the competing agendas just immediately injected into the debate. We've seen it uh, mass shooting after mass shooting in this country, and so I'm not surprised to see it here. I don't know if this guy's a prominent senator or he's the equivalent of Republican lawmaker says, you know, when it's a, a obscure state legislator or something like that. But uh, this is unfortunately where we are. And I think why we're never going to see the unity, at least in any time soon, that we saw after 9-11. Uh, because if you have problems with the immigration program, and we've talked about what Angela Merkel and others have done in Europe and, and whether that's good, bad, otherwise. But the day for that debate is, is not when the bodies are still warm in these mosques. Exactly. There was a, I'm going to say back in the 90s, during the, it was one of the gun control debates. And I remember that there was a, the Second Amendment advocates used to refer to politicians who would ro- rush to the scene of a shooting and call for gun control blood dancers. And it was a, that's a harsh phrase. That, that's, that's incendiary, all that stuff. But you do see this. And anytime you look at some terrible tragedy and think this is the opportunity for me to say, hello, fellow citizens, what this terrible, the, the bleeding in the streets you see behind me is further proof that I was right. Resist that impulse. Let people grieve. Let people process this horrible event. And then let us consider legal uh, what, what kind of changes to law or changes to policy ought to be made. Um, it's shamelessly opportunistic. And in the case of this case, it's just um, it just feels like pouring gasoline on top of a, onto a fire. All right, let's move to our second martini here. I'll let the listener decide if this is bad or crazy. I think we're uh, qualifying this as crazy uh, because the reaction's not just coming from folks in Australia and New Zealand. It's coming from our own lawmakers as well, including New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who, with a couple of tweets, has us rolling our eyes, if not more than that. Uh, she went and listed in one tweet uh, different mass shootings at different houses of worship, the one in Sutherland Springs, Texas, the one at the at the synagogue outside of Pittsburgh, and then this one here uh, in New Zealand. And uh, at the bottom of that tweet, she says, what good are your thoughts and prayers when they don't even keep the pews safe? And of course, if you know some scripture, you know that the prayers of a faithful man availeth much, so prayers can do a great deal of good. Uh, then she goes on later, because she was probably getting some blowback from that, in a subsequent tweet and saying, 
Thoughts and prayers is really a reference to the NRA's phrase used to deflect conversation away from policy change during tragedies, not directed to Prime Minister Ardern, who I greatly admire. Once again, we just talked about these people diving in. We've seen folks, particularly on the left, I think Chris Murphy was the first one to do it after one of these shootings, to say, what's the point of your thoughts and prayers if you're not going to change laws? And now Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is blaming the NRA indirectly for a mass shooting in New Zealand, which I'm pretty sure has pretty tough gun laws. I said the other one was a layer of previous martini, and this shooting is an onion with layer after layer of bad news. This one is just layer of layer of, of faulty logic and, and almost nonsensical, nonsensical assertions there. Because let's, the, the first thing is the argument, has anyone ever said, oh, thoughts and prayers will prevent shootings? Anyone ever said that? Has anyone ever argued, no, 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 the problem is we don't need any other policies. We don't need police forces. We don't need armed citizens. We don't know. No, no, if we just think and pray, no one's made that argument. That, that's a straw man argument. We don't. We don't send our troops after ISIS and Al Qaeda armed with thoughts and prayers, right? We, we, you know, we we recognize that this is there are physical, tangible threats that need to be addressed physically and tangibly. Having said, you know, thoughts and prayers can offer a lot of comfort, and people believe in the power of prayer. But no one says, "Oh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to uh, wear a bulletproof vest today." <laughs> I'm not going to wear. There's a great line outside. I think it was a, uh, it was a sign outside of Ohio. It said, "You know, its state slogan was." Uh, it was one of the Midwestern states. The slogan was, with God, all things are possible. But the sign right after it, Greg said, still, wear your seatbelt anyway. This is a, a, a dumb, ignorant, ill-informed outsider's view of faith and what it does for people. Um, but So that seems terrible. This assertion, well, I'm really making fun of the NRA or I'm, I'm taking a shot at the Look, you know, whatever you think of the NRA, they're not responsible for the gun laws of New Zealand, right? The, the first N there is national. <laughs> you know, that that kind of should be kind of clear. Whatever their, your beef with them should be, it should be over U.S. gun laws. They don't set the gun laws down there in New Zealand. And then the third thing. So you're mocking prayer after a shooting at a mosque. Congresswoman, what exactly do you think they do in that mosque? There's interesting. There's a new polling out indicating she's actually got a, uh, as Andrew Ocasio-Cortez's uh, public approval rating is dropping fairly significantly. We, we've talked about her on this podcast. Some might say we've talked about her too much, uh, although I think it's safe to say how much she dominates the, the media discussion here. Not necessarily the not sharpest knife in the drawer. And, and I think moments like this reveal that. And I think this might be the sort of time where it's starting to catch up with her. Um, we've seen her fighting with other Democrats. If you were a Democrat, and even if you really wanted to push for a lot of gun control, I don't think you'd want to see somebody sneering about the, the there's no value to thoughts and prayers after a shooting at a mosque. Um, and you got to wonder how many American Muslims or Muslims around the world would tear that and just say, um, no, no, you're, you're missing the point entirely. So uh, again, you know, there's this nagging feeling that shootings bring out the worst in us, certainly in social media. Um, but this is even by the scale of traditional tone deaf or partisan or, or snotty things to say after a massacre and, and tragedy like this, this is pretty bad, Brett. All right, let's move on to lighter fare uh, for our final crazy martini here. And we go to uh, CNN. Uh, Howard Schultz, the former Starbucks CEO, uh, still contemplating an independent run for president, gave a speech earlier this week at Miami-Dade Community College. And here's, here's how CNN reports on part of that speech. At another point in his speech, Schultz took aim at the Trump administration's use of executive authority 
telling the audience that the administration has, quote, flagrantly used a national emergency for pet projects, circumventing an entire branch of government, unquote. Schultz also said as president he would not sign any legislation, none, into law that does not have bipartisan support. He cited major inspirational legislative initiatives like welfare reform and the Civil Rights Act as being the product of bipartisan support. The former CEO said if he is elected president, he also wouldn't put a Supreme Court nominee before the Senate unless that person could be confirmed by two-thirds of the body, something that would mean bipartisan approval for nominees. Schultz added that removing politics from the nomination process is a critical first step. Of course, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh uh, got less than 60 votes, and uh, the filibuster no longer exists for Supreme Court nominees. So, Jim, a lot of liberals pulling their hair out even more over Howard Schultz because they're saying, what are you doing if you did that, then you'd never get anyone confirmed. And then if the Republican is the next president, they can pull another Merrick Garland. So uh, what do you make of Schultz and what do you make of the hysteria from the left in response? Well, in a, in a very strange way, Greg, if we feel like um, that there's been too much legislating from the bench, uh, if the courts have overstepped their constitutional duties and they've gotten to the point where they uh, they meddle in laws, they strike down laws that they should not and they're not as bound to the Constitution, they're not calling balls and strikes, as John Roberts put it. And the Howard Schultz plan has some benefit to it, um, Greg, because it would basically do away with the judiciary <laughs> because nobody would get confirmed. Under the current standard, you need 50 votes. And if it comes to a 50-50 split, this, the vice president will come in and, and break the tie. Um, we haven't had that last couple between Gorsuch and, and uh, uh Kavanaugh were, were, you know, pretty close. There were not a lot of Democratic votes for him, but that's, um, that's that you know, that's uh, that's where the lines are. You know, if if the standard Howard Schultz instituted, you just wouldn't see any judges get confirmed. My suspicion would be you just because I don't think there are that many figures out there who who would have who would command that kind of respect. Um, the poly, you know, he, he's saying, oh, why can't it would be? I I saw discussion of this yesterday, Greg. People saying, well, look. Uh, you know, Scalia and uh, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg were confirmed by wide margins. I think one was 98 to nothing and the other was like 95 to three or something. It was a really different time then, right? There was a broad bipartisan consensus that uh, if you were qualified for the, the bench, no scandals, no skeletons in your closet, good record of, of judicial decisions and writings and, and all of that, then people would say, okay, you know, I don't agree with this judge. I don't think this judge is going to make the kind of decisions that I like, but they're qualified for the court. I have no ideological, re- I have no uh, ethical reason or no experience reason to say this person should not be on the court. And everybody in both parties went for that. And it worked uh, with the exception of uh, Clarence Thomas, uh, which obviously had his own controversies back in uh, the early 90s. It basically carried that way until John Roberts and uh, John Roberts and Alito came up in the same around the same time, Bush's second term. And it was this, well, wait a second. You know, everybody, no one could make the argument that Roberts wasn't qualified. Nobody could point to any scandals or skeletons in his closet or anything like that. But a lot of Democrats, including the president, the, the you know, including then Senator Barack Obama said, well, we're going to fill We're not just going to vote against this guy. We're going to filibuster this guy. We're going to try to filibuster this guy. We're going to do everything we can to keep this guy off the court. And that changed everything. Because once the Democrats did it, the Republicans were going to do it. And you saw similar efforts, unsuccessful against Kagan, against Sotomayor, leading up to, and eventually became an issue of, okay, well, if we're going to, if you guys are going to filibuster, we're going to nuke the filibuster. And that's how we ended up with the situation with, uh, with Kavanaugh. You know, you can't put, this is not a genie that's easily going to be put back into the bottle 
And the idea of wishing that there were judges who were so respected that you could get 20-some members of the opposite party to vote for them, those days uh, you know, are long gone. I don't think those figures exist anymore. I'm, I'm trying to think of like, the single most respected jurist of all time, Greg, and I don't know, Wapner? <laughs> Judy? Yeah. Judy, Dredd, uh, <laughs> Reinhold? I don't know. <laughs> Insert your favorite judge here, you know. They wouldn't get a whole bunch of votes because everyone sees these Supreme Court, you know, uh, uh, seats as as giant, you know, enormously consequential decisions about how the country is going to be governed. I don't know if you can put that that genie back in the bottle. So, plus the other thing, if I'm only going to vote for legislation if it gets uh, bipartisan support, I mean, I hear that, Greg, and my first thought is, um, so does Mansion count? <laughs> Absolutely, you get him. Right, in that case, well, then fine, because we can get Manchin to vote for a whole bunch of stuff, and they'll probably, you know, if it's a Democrat, they're probably thinking, okay, does Collins or Murkowski count? Oh yeah, bipartisan is a, does not mean fifty-fifty split on the uh, supporters of the legislation. That's for sure. Right. We can get a, we can always get one or two. That that's manageable. It's, you know, it's, it's who's up this year, who's in a state that usually goes the other way. Cory Gardner might be feeling some pressure this cycle. You know, that you can do that. We can get fig leaf of bipartisanship. But if you want real bipartisanship, well, then again, you know, just as you're not going to get that many judges uh, confirmed, you're just not going to get that much legislation signed into law if, uh, if Howard Schultz has that idea. So I find Howard Schultz um, amiable and well-meaning. I think you look at what he's done with his life, building Starbucks and charities he supports. He's, a, you know, a very decent guy. But uh, I mean, clearly he doesn't understand how Washington works or he just wish, thinks he could like wish into existence a completely different political atmosphere. And I don't think that's going to happen. So um, good luck, Howard. Have fun storming the castle, I guess is my, to quote the Princess Bride, would be my attitude towards that. Exactly right. But I also think if uh, there's a nominee out there that somehow you got close to two thirds, how much incentive does that give the Avenatis of the world to go trolling for whatever just to get it down to 60 or anything less than 67. I mean, it would. Right? I mean, you know, well, then the next thing is, so why do you need 67? First of all, if somebody's sick, it, it, you know, or out of town, all of a sudden it goes from 67 to 66. Um, but like why? Well, now that we've decided that only getting 52 votes or whatever, we, you know, that, that's just not good enough. And well, we expect 60. Why not 70? Why not eight? Let, let's demand unanimous consent of all 100 senators at that point. You know, how how much opposition is considered? Okay, there's really legitimate opposition. And how much opposition do we want to consider to be partisan? You know, again, in, in the end of it, this basically comes down to the role of the judiciary. And my, you know, it will not surprise listeners that the conservative viewpoint of the judiciary is that they're supposed to be, you know, pl- calling balls and strikes basically evaluating judge under a very simple measurement, you know, does this law violate the constitution? If it does, it's got to go. It doesn't matter if it's popular. doesn't matter if people love it. doesn't matter if you folks you liked passed it, you know, same thing with a law that you may not like. If it does not violate the constitution, it's not the Supreme court's job to say, no, get rid of this. It's bad. You know, it's one of those things where this idea of good and bad and constitutional and unconstitutional, they're not synonyms, you know, and that, you know, that would be a healthier philosophy, I think. It would make these, these judicial fights less contentious because people would stop trying to use the Supreme Court as a way to enact changes in law that there simply is not enough public support to do through legislation. And there, by the way, there have been various times where uh, Roberts and, and several, Thomas, a whole bunch of the quote-unquote right-of-center, strict constructionists, whatever term you prefer to use for the, what you and I would call the good justices, um, there will times they will disappoint us. They will frustrate us, but their argument will generally be, look, this passed the legislature. It, you know, does not violate the constitution in any way that I can see. 
This is not a seal of approval, good housekeeping, you know, at a boy for the law. It's simply arguing that if you want to change this law, you should got to do it through the legislative process. And, you know, they, you know, at the end of it, this stems from the idea of people using the judiciary to make changes in law that they would not be able to get through uh, the traditional means. Well, for the old school types who think it's way better to uh, stop bad stuff than pass good stuff, the unanimity thing might be a really good strategy. But uh, I was going to say, you know, you know what? You get no legislation passed and uh, no judges confirmed. Really minimal damage, Greg. <laughs> and as somebody said under this, eventually you would end up with either Gorsuch or whoever the youngest justice would be, <laughs> would be writing a lot of unanimous one nothing decisions. <laughs> oh, yeah, long term, that could work. Could be worse. Jim, have a good weekend. We'll reconvene on Monday. See you then. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Have a great weekend, everyone, and tune in again on Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch.